Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 90. We're doing a little, just a short series through August. My, basically my five favorite psalms, and this is a psalm that's meant a whole lot to me down through the years, especially in times when I've been through adversity, faced things that come from seemingly out of nowhere sometimes. Of course, we don't know the future, and so it always seems that way, doesn't it? And this has meant a lot to me and encouraged my heart, and I hope it will you this morning as we think about teaching, learn, learning to number our days. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by His Spirit, Psalm chapter 90. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away. This is us. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years, our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long have pity on your servants? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord and may he add his blessings to this reading of it. Let's pray. God, today, I, this morning, I simply pray for your grace and mercy, clarity of heart, clarity of mind, clarity of expression, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Oh, God, our rock and our redeemer. I pray this morning we leave here with a renewed vigor to pray that you would teach us to number our days and that we would be in an endless pursuit daily of a heart of wisdom that comes from you alone. Oh God, do this in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For the last two weeks I have opened, introduced the sermon with a song and I see no reason to break a good trend. Right, so we're going to do this. This is not just the new methodology or anything like that, so, so you can relax. But many of you who know me know that I love country music, and by country music, I don't mean what's played on the radio today. I mean real, robust, typically old country music, and I like it. I like it because in its best form, and I mean its best form, and yes, there's much country music that isn't good, but I mean in its best form... It sings poetry and tells stories about life in a fallen, uncertain, painful world. There's even a category of songs, pain songs, right? George Jones sang pain songs because life hurts and life is short. And you probably, just, if you hadn't discovered that previously, just in the past week, you would have discovered that, right? And the Bible doesn't back away from this. Why I call Ecclesiastes, remember, I call that the Bible's country western song because it kind of is. <laughs> There's all kinds of things in there, but I digress. What I love about country music, it, it admits 
unlike some other forms of music, even some gospel music, it admits that we are broken actors living life on a broken down stage. That's who we are. Broken actors living life on a broken down stage. I don't think any of us would dispute that. See that here in Psalm 90 this morning. Here's a song from a few years back, and I think I've quoted this before, and if I have, it's okay, just you'll have to, you'll have to bear with me. I won't sing it this morning. If I want to torture you, I would do that, but I shall not. I'll resist the urge to do that. But here's the song. So don't blink. Some of you know this song, probably. Well, the songwriter writes, I turned on the evening news and I saw an old man being interviewed, turning 102 today. Boy, would you like to live to be 102? I'd like to know that right now. I'd relax, probably. Turning 102 today, ask him what's a secret to life, and he looked up from his old pipe. He laughed and said, all I can say is, don't blink. Just like that, you're six years old and you take a nap, and you wake up and you're 25 and your high school sweetheart becomes your wife. Don't blink. You just might miss your babies growing up like mine did. Turning into moms and dads, and next thing you know, your better half of 50 years is there in bed. She's dying, and you're praying God takes you instead. Trust me, friend, 100 years goes faster than you think. Don't blink. Like, that's silly. No, that is James chapter 4. Don't blink. Because 100 years goes faster than you think have that phrase in the back of your mind because I think that's what Moses in this psalm, the only psalm written by Moses, what he's praying, this is the prayer of Moses, what in his prayer we learned this morning that 100 years, 70 years or 80 years goes faster than you think. It's powerful, isn't it? This song, the truth, <laughs> this expression of what Moses is communicating to us today and the audience, his original audience and to us. The last 30 years of my life, really, certainly the last 10 years of my life, I've been around a lot of death. And I'm going to be, the older I get, the more I'm going to see a lot of death. I, I know that. I'm trying to prepare myself for that. But, but nothing does. We don't like death. And I think the reason we don't like it is because it's not the way it's supposed to be, right? It's not natural. It's a night of natural causes. There's no such thing as natural causes, right? Because death is an intruder into God's perfect world because of the fall. During one several months period of my ministry at a previous church, I did 18 funerals in just a few months. 18. That's a lot of funerals. Some of you may not have ever been to 18 funerals in your entire life. I did 18 of them in just a short span. I've seen death. As a journalist, I used to see it up close and personal from everything from car wrecks to tornadoes and murders and much, much more. It seems like my entire adult life I've been around death. That's probably why I talk about it a lot in my sermons. But the Bible talks a lot about it too, as we're going to see here today. Death comes upon us suddenly, doesn't it? My father, August 19th, 30 years, this year and just next week we'll celebrate 30 years and mark 30 years. 66 years old, had an aneurysm and in one day he was gone. Without warning, our friend John Powell, some of you know John from the seminary. John, 38 years old, just last summer was killed, stopped to help somebody on the side of the road and was hit by a semi-truck, killed, gone, left his wife and children behind in the blink of an eye, 38 years old, in perfect health. Young man at church I pastor in Birmingham, 18 years old, one week before his high school graduation, hit by a car and killed. Old teammate of mine from back home, his son, seven years old, had brain cancer. And from the time they discovered it, the time he died was just about seven weeks. Seven weeks. Another friend in Birmingham, a couple in our church, their grandchild, crib death at their house, eight weeks old. Those people... Say, boy, you're really serious a lot of the time. You're serious about this. And I think this is why. Because it's a serious business, isn't it? Moses, what Moses tells us here today, that life is serious business. It's why we don't 
come here to play games. We serve a God who doesn't play games, right? This God, He doesn't play around. And His Word doesn't play around with us. It's very, like the best country music it is, very, very sobering. This text should be this morning, and it's one of the reasons I like it. But all those people I named, think about all different ages, all gone, all dead, without warning. As James puts it, life is a vapor. And that's a good way to summarize this text this morning. Life is a vapor because Scripture repeats itself, right? Over and over and over and over. Now, this psalm was written by Moses, and most scholars agree that the background to this psalm was Numbers 20. Because in Numbers 20, just in very quick succession, Miriam... Moses' younger sister, who was very much uh, one of the leaders uh, in Israel, Miriam died. And then Aaron, his other brother, died. And God told Moses, you're going to soon die. And if it's one thing I've learned as I've started to grapple with the middle age, that the older you get, the more you think about this. The closer your death comes and the more you see people around you die, the more you think about death. And so I'm not surprised that Moses took his one opportunity to write a song to give us a prayer about the uncertainty and the brevity of life because he was staring down death himself. And you will too someday. And this is a young church. And so I keep talking about this because you're a young church and I want you to take this seriously. I'm like one of the oldest people in the church. I know I've had an attitude about that. The whole time I've been your pastor, it's a little weird for me. But we're young and yet... Think about the illustrations I just gave you. Some of those people were young. They were children. Man knows not his time, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, right? So this is applicable, not just when you're old or older or middle-aged-ish. It's applicable all the time. And I think Moses knew that, so I'm not, I'm not surprised that he was thinking about this. Because the older you get, the more you'll think about God. The, more you, the closer you get to death, the more you'll think about God and how you should live in light of who God is and who you are. I mean, Calvin said, as you know, I love to repeat, uh, genuism, consist, genuism consists entirely in knowledge of God, knowledge of self. Know God, know yourself. The closer you get to death, the more you want to know God and know about you. The Bible says that's really summarized the entire Bible, doesn't it? Dive into this this morning with just a beautiful expression of where theology really begins. It begins where Moses begins his prayer this morning with God. We always start with God, then we come to us, right? We don't. Bad theology begins with man, and it, it encompasses man. It, 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 it is, is uh, obsessed with man, right? Man-centered theology. Moses begins with God. He says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations, before mountains, the mountains were brought forth. Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Man, that is beautiful, isn't it? That will preach. That is beautiful. That's God, who God is. I've had my kids ask me, your kids will probably ask you, popular question, where did God come from? Or who made God? My kids that are young used to answer, we'd ask, told them the catechism, say, who made you? And they'd say, daddy. <laughs> right? Well, no, not, not, not really and truly. But they love, because it's a good question, who made God? And we learn here the answer to that question, don't we? No one made God. God is uncreated. That's what, one of the things, one of the many attributes that makes him different than us, his eternality. God is eternal. God never needed to be made because he was always there. Now, get your minds around that. I've been thinking about that my whole life. I used to sit when the preacher would say something like this. When I was a kid, I'd think about that the whole time. You probably will too. God never needed to be made. He was always there. He exists in, in a way that's different from us. And this is where we have to understand as much as we can. We exist in a derived and created, finite fragile way. There's a limit to us. There are, there, uh, there are barriers. We are barriers. God has no barriers, right? But our Creator, He exists as eternal, self-sustaining. I want to use a $5 word here. Necessary. What do you mean by that? Good question. He is eternal. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no ending. Self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything outside Himself to keep on living. He doesn't need us. He didn't make us because he was lonely and needed us, as some have, I've heard some preachers say. He's necessary. 
When we talk about God being necessary, we mean that his existence is necessary in the sense that there's no possibility of him ceasing to exist. He's the only necessary being in the world, right? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is necessary. There's absolutely no possibility of him not existing. What a mystery. We, God is, in the, end, in the end, as the old Puritans like to say, he is incomprehensible, Right? That means we know a lot of things about him that he's chosen and been pleased to reveal to us, but we certainly don't know everything. We cannot plumb the depths of God, and his eternality is one of those mysteries, right? We come from him, but he comes from no one. He exists uncreated. He is self-existent, completely independent. The only independent being in all all of history (laughs) is God. We love to talk about our independence, right? Well, God is the only independent being. Acts 17.25, Paul very famously explained to the Athenians that the creator of the world is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's not served by human hands. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Beloved, you need God. The worst rebel who is this morning resisting God and spewing out hatred toward God and blasphemies toward God, God is sustaining them right now. He is giving them the ability to spew forth those blasphemies right now. He made them, He's sustaining them, just like He is us, His people. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Every breath you breathe, every day you have on this earth is a gift from His hand. I hope you appreciate that. And the longer I live, the more I realize that my breaths are becoming, you know, they'll be becoming more and more of a collector's item. The more I realize I need to be thankful for every single one of them. This is, this, Moses prays this out of humility and it should humble us. Make this your prayer. You can pray this prayer. Boy, it's beautiful. It'll be a long way down the road toward knowing God and praying rightly in a God-centered fashion. independent. He's self-existent. No one made God. God has been our dwelling place in all generations. The the creator was here long before the creation. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. And Moses was aware, probably more than most of us, that life is uncertain at best. We live in a dangerous world, a fallen world. And the only thing that's certain is that nothing is ever certain. I mean, the only thing that's unchanging, right, is that everything always changes you're like me, you hate that. I don't like change. And everything changes. The world's changed. We, talk, we love to say that, and it's true. Everything's changed. Everything's changing. It'll change more. It'll change again. Not God. Not God. He is not uncertain. There's no permanence found in this world. There's, our, our ground is always shifting under our feet. Moses knew this. He'd seen it literally shift and swallow men whole out in God's wrath and God's judgment. But Moses also knew that God is the one permanent thing, that God is the foundation for everything. If we're to live our lives with joy and at least with a measure of peace in this world, we need to know this. And not only know this fact, this theology, we need to know it for life. We need to know it for ourselves and how we live our lives. We need to shape how we live our everyday lives. A person who is anchored in the Lord is eternally secure. You have no worries, not really and truly. I mean, we have worries and worry about, you know, where's the rent going to come from or can we go afford groceries or we're going to be able to, you know, replace our car. Are we going to, you know, we worry about things, how our children are going to be when they grow up or, you know, how our grandchildren are they going uh, to come to know Jesus. We worry about things, but really and truly, we're eternally secure if we know Him because He is eternally immortal. He's our dwelling place. That's what Moses is speaking of here. We dwell in Him. If we're in Christ, we're in Him. We dwell in Him. He's our dwelling place or our refuge, as some translations render it. It is certain, we saw this back in Hebrews, didn't we? That we have no fixed home here because the ground just keeps moving underneath us. But in the Lord, we have a dwelling place. And how secure is that dwelling place? Well, it's just as secure as the God himself, as the refuge itself, or himself in this case. Time does not limit God. It's hard to imagine this, is it? God stands outside of time. In fact, God created time. There's a time when there was no time. 
How do I know that? Well, because the Bible, because Bible says at the very outset what? Well, the first three words in the Bible. In, need to buy a vowel, in the beginning. That's right. In the beginning. There was a beginning. But God stands outside of time. God works in time, but time does not limit God. We are creatures of time. As Moses will point out here in verse 10, time does not change God. The passing of time does not change God's knowledge. He has always known as much as he knows now, and his knowledge is complete and exhaustive. Well, those of you who love knowledge, and I love knowledge, wouldn't you like to know everything? I want to know everything. <laughs> My wife even says sometimes I think I know everything. <laughs> and she's probably right about that, and it's same and true of you, so don't laugh at me. knows everything. His knowledge doesn't change. The future, he knows the future. He's ordained the future, right? He wrote the script. It's going to play out just as he has foreordained. And there's great comfort in that. Time does not limit God. Time does not change God. The passing of night, time doesn't change his knowledge. He's always known this much and his knowledge is complete. Look at verse 4. A thousand years in his sight are as brief as yesterday is to our mind. I mean, God is everlasting. He inhabits eternity. He lives forever and ever. He's immortal, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, who is, who was, and is, and is to come. That's God. That's the God who's your refuge. Why would He not be your treasure? Why would you fool with anything else in this world and make that your treasure? Why? That can't be your refuge. It's going to change. Right? Relationships, they crumble sometimes, they change. Your husband, your wife, you're going to lose them someday. They're going to die. Your children, it's your, your, your parents, you're going to lose them someday. Why would your hope be in that? No, this God is from everlasting to everlasting, inhabits eternity. Time does not have the same meaning for God as it has for us, and that's hard for us to understand. For us, a thousand years, think about a thousand years. If someone said, you're going to live a thousand years, man, that's a long time, isn't it? We can't get our minds around that. And Moses says here that for God, who exists outside of time, who created time, it's no different, a thousand years is no different from a very short span of time, like this sermon, right, or just lunch this afternoon. That's what a thousand years is to God. It's nothing. That's who the God we serve. And so that's our anchor. In this text, in our prayers, in our, our living, in our theology, we always begin with God. He's our anchor, Right? Of course, that has much meaning for us. We're going to get to that right here, right now, verses 3 to 6. My second main point. So, so God is eternal. We can almost say man is not. I had that originally written, but man, man's life is a vapor. Verses 3 to 6, get this. You return man to dust. Speaking to God, you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, as a watch in the night. And then he says this. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. The power of life and death is in the hands of God. He sweeps you and me. He sweeps us away like a flood, he says here, like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. That's life. God returns man to dust. The power of life is not in our hands, right? We can... We can try everything, cryogenics, we can try reincarnation, we can try, you know, all, all these things to try to, I think Ted Williams, they cut his head off and put him in some cryogenic chamber somewhere out west and they're hoping that they'll be able to bring the splendid splinter back someday, but I got news for them, they won't. They won't. God has the power of life and death. Only God, it's in his hands. Why? Because we're Adam's descendants. That's what I think he's driving at here. He's hearkening back to creation. He says our lives are like a, he compares it to a flood and a dream and grass here in verses 5 and 6. He says life is like a flood. It, it comes, it, it, it lasts for a short time, and then it, it sweeps us away, right? And it's short. Death can come and sweep us away suddenly, just like by my father. We didn't, I didn't think that last Sunday on that last Lord's Day when I said goodbye to him, went back to to school in Athens, Georgia, I didn't know I'd be saying goodbye to him. I didn't know I wouldn't see him alive again, but I didn't. We don't know, do we? And this should, I think this should shape 
not just the way we live ourselves, but how we relate to other people. I mean, you never know when that, that, that last time you say goodbye is going to be the last time. How do you want to end up with that person? How do you want that relationship to end up? With regret? Some of you have regret. I've had relationships that they ended in regret. I'm very thankful I was close to my parents. I had a wonderful relationship. Not perfect, mind you, for sure, but good. What fences do we need to mend in light of that? Where do we need to repent and be reconciled to somebody? Maybe, maybe you, you need that. I don't know. Because life is like a flood. It's like a dream. It comes and goes in a night. There are dreams I hate and dreams I love, right? That when I'm playing baseball when I'm 18 years old and I'm hitting a home run, I like that dream. I'd like to live in that for a while. But usually my dreams are just silly and I don't remember them and they're just gone in a night, right? Because your life is like that. It just comes and goes. You don't even understand it. It's like grass. The third thing he compares it to. It's in green in the morning, withers by nightfall in the heat of the day. Comes up and then it's gone. Like our yards right now. My yard about a month ago, man, it looked great. Mine now, <laughs> it's a bunch of dust. Comes up and then it goes away. And young person, that's your life. That's your life. That's my life. That's what he's saying here. He says in verse 10, and this is the one that's most frightening to me, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. I can do the math. I can do that much math anyway, right? I'm 54, 70. Oh, man. I don't like that much. I'm on the wrong side of the math, right? It's, the hourglass is running out of sand. I mean, that, that, but this is who we are, right? We're 70, even by, by, by strength, reason of strength, 80. 80 is a long time. He's saying that we know that's true. My dad was 66. My mom died three years ago. She was 83. And most people we know, you know that, that, that's about it. Because who... They're, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they're soon gone, and we fly away. Wow. Bring our years to an end like a sigh. Verse, verse 9, we, we breathe our last breath. We live to be 70 or 80. Life is a vapor. James 4 puts it this way. I love the way James. There's a good, here's a, a good way to illustrate it biblically. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. This is what I like to call biblical realism. This psalm this morning is biblical, a good dose of biblical realism. Reality TV is fake. This is real, right? Yet you do not know what tomorrow may bring. What is your life? For you are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But a mist that appears and then it passes. I mean, Moses and James, their point is your life is frail and it's brief. It's like a mist, it's a fog that appears and a little while and disappears. It's like a puff of smoke. It's like the fog that on my, on my family's farm, we lived, our house was up on a, a hill and our bottom land, there's a creek that ran through there and it would, uh, there'd be rain and at night, there'd be fog come up, and by about, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning, it was, we'd say the fog is burned off. It was gone. That's the picture of our lives here. 70, 80 years? Life is a vapor, isn't it? That's what, that's what he's trying to tell us. It's frail. It's brief. We cannot even guarantee our existence for one single day. In fact, the psalmist, we'll look at this in a couple weeks, Lord willing, Psalm 139, he says... In your book are written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So God has written in the book of history that every day he's ordained for you, every day he's given for you, it's written in his book. He knows the outcome of your life, the number of days you have, teach us a number. Our days you'll see in a moment, God's numbered your days, but you don't know the number of your days, and I don't either. That should change the way we live, the way we think about everything we do. Ecclesiastes 9, 12, man knows not his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We never know what a day is going to bring. It's what we sung earlier. That's why I requested Joe to sing this hymn, which he told me had too many chords in it. But alas, it's a beautiful hymn. I love this hymn. I love this line. Isaac Watts wrote it. Great old Puritan hymnist. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. 
Friends, we are sons and daughters of time. God's outside of time, but we exist in time. And time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. A.C. Ryle said, all things are growing older. The world is growing old. We ourselves are going older. A few more summers, a few more winters, a little more sickness, a, little, a few more sorrows, a few more weddings, and a few more partings. And then what? Why? The grass will be growing over our graves. You say, Pastor... <laughs> I can't think of a more morbid sermon you could have possibly preached than this. I came here for an uplifting message, not this. But friends, let me tell you, we need to hear this. Because the world, the world's trying to get the, get the same outcome for everybody, right? Trying to guarantee that no one will suffer, we'll all have the same outcome. They're busy doing that right now. And they're not going to succeed. Because death happens to all of us, 70 or 80 years. They're not going to succeed, are they? We know that. We know that. The grass will soon be growing over our graves. God has the last word, right? He's ordained the number of our days. And and the good news is we're mortal until he calls us home. We can live lives for his glory that with with a certain amount of risk. We are risk averse in our culture. We are risk averse. We don't like risk at all. We're trying to avert risk in every way we can. That's part of what we're up to now. But everything's risky, isn't it? Talk about, you know, pandemics and shots and masks and all this stuff. And there's risk. But there's risk. There's risk in everything we do, right? You step out of your house in the morning into a fallen world, there is no guarantee what's going to happen. There's risk. As long as we live in this world, we're going to face risk. I think the culture is guilty of an over-realized eschatology. We want to make this into utopia, and we don't have the power to do that. Only Jesus and the cross of Christ has the power to make the utopia for his people. See how that works? Moses is contrasting eternity and the stability of God with the weakness and brevity, weakness of man and the brevity of his earthly life. This is why we need God, which is my final two much shorter points. A third, man needs rescue from God's wrath. Man needs rescue from God's wrath. Our lost man's only 70 or 80 years old. We need intervention. We need rebirth, don't we? We need to be born again. We die physically. Death comes. This 70 or 80 years happens because of the fall. Because we will stand before the God whom we have sinned against, before whom, against whom we've, we have fomented treason and be judged. On a standard, not a sliding scale, but a standard of His perfect holiness. And so there's a very real sense in which if you're outside of Christ, your biggest problem is God and the wrath you face. You see it here in verses 7 to 9, also in verse 11. All who rejected God will bear His wrath for all eternity. Sinners need the new birth. Think about this. Once born people will die twice. Twice born people will only die once. Why do I say that? Well, think of Nicodemus when he came to Jesus, his teacher of the Pharisees, came to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he said, you know, teacher, what is this teaching? Ask him about it. And Jesus said what? Unless you will be born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Because we're all going to die, right? The question is, are you going to die once or are you going to die twice? And the second death will be the the, the final death at each, and the, the eternal death at the end of time and the great judgment at the end of time. So once born people, born just biologically, they're going to die twice. Those who are in Christ have been born again, they're going to die once. So that God has solved death because Christ defeated sin on the cross and death in the empty tomb. He took the keys to death and went inside and unlocked it, unlocked in the inside and came out. And through him we have eternal life and that's the answer. 
If you don't know him today and your, your life is unstable, it's on unsolid ground, you don't know what the future is going to bring, it scares you to death, then flee to him. Flee to Christ and flee to him and repent of your sins and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope of eternal life. Because you need rescue from God's wrath. I mean, our greatest problem is not just our frailty that we only live 70 or 80 years. Our greatest problem is that we're sinners subject to the wrath of God. That's what he's driving at here. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. Here in verse 7, we are dismayed. We're brought to an end by God's wrath against sin. That's what, that's what causes death. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. My sin, your, our sins have come before him, even our secret sins. And we know God is not only eternal, he's also omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There are no secret sins. You may say, well, I'm prideful, I'm angry. I'm like, you know, God doesn't see it. Or I'm doing this and no one sees it. God sees it. God sees it. Hebrews 4.13 no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom, of him to whom we have must give an account. No secrets with God. Verse 8, verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. There it is. All of our days will pass away under God's wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sign. We, we go out with kaput, don't we? We don't go out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> I know that's popular in the movies and popular in music, but we don't. We just die with a whimper. We draw our last breath, and it is finished. Our lives are finished. We're under God's wrath if we're outside of Him. I think Moses is thinking of the fall of Adam and Eve here, and he wrote, of course, remember, Moses also wrote Genesis 3, but he's probably got in mind his own sin of striking the rock and God's judgment, which kept him out of the promised land. Moses is a sinner too, just like we are. And he's under God's wrath, and he understands that, that he needs rescue from God's wrath. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and the wrath, your wrath according to the fear of you? I love how Spurgeon takes this. Spurgeon said, Moses saw family members and people of Israel dying all around him. He lived among funerals and was overwhelmed at the terrible results of divine displeasure. He felt that no one could measure God's wrath. There was one that came after Moses who did measure the full weight of God's wrath. Who has measured God's wrath? You can't measure it. It's immeasurable. But Christ measured it because he bore it all. He paid it all at Calvary. He bore the full measure of God's wrath for you so that you don't have to. You deserve God's wrath. You've come under his wrath. But Christ bore it all. He has felt the full measure of God's wrath. And beloved, that is the good news, isn't it? All the death, all this, the, all the country music I talked about in the first, you know, several verses here, it all comes undone here, doesn't it? For all those in Christ, there is a happy ending. All those bad things, all the bad news comes undone. In light of the cross of Jesus Christ, because he bore God's wrath. He has measured God's wrath. He measured it for you. He paid every drop of God's wrath that your sins deserve for all of his people. For all time. There's nothing left to pay. You couldn't pay the debt and he paid it for you as your great substitute. Drank the full cup of God's wrath. Rose again on the third day. Sin is dealt with at the cross. Think about this. Sin, the double cure. Top lady sings about. Has us sing about. Dealt with sin at the cross and death and the resurrection. Beautiful is the gospel. And so we can face death, can't we, and say, oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? For the Christian, there is no sting. At both my parents' funerals, we sang hymns and we had a worship service. We sang all, all their favorite hymns, and it was glorious. And I know that's not true of all of you, but parents and other loved ones, that man, we, we sang because they were in Christ. And I believe I'll see them again. They knew they needed rescue from God's wrath, and they rescued through Christ, through the, His death and resurrection. Brings me to the last point. That's true for salvation. What about our lives? Well, man needs grace to live faithfully for the Lord. Verses 12 to 17. To get to kind of the application. This is kind of how it falls out, I think. Since we live, as R.C. Sproul loved to put it, between two hospitals, we come to the good news that Christ bore the full wrath, and then here's how we live in that time between the two hospitals. Faithfully for the Lord. 
I mean, in light of God's eternality and man's weakness and the brevity of life, Moses now prays to, for God to guide his people in faithful living, to make them joyful and bless their works. And there's really six petitions here. And these are, this is what we ought to be ourselves praying for in our own lives in light of the brevity of life. Now, I love what he says here. And we, this is a very famous verse here, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. What does Moses mean by teach us to number our days? I think he means by that that we need to learn to consider every day for what it's worth. Every day is a gift from God. Every day. Every day, every day, every day. Have you maybe lost a friend or a parent or a child, someone you loved and you wish you had one day with them? I say this all the time to, to my family. I'd love to have one more day with my dad. Just watch one more baseball game, one more day. But we don't think that way, do we? We just think we're going to live forever. Nobody thinks death is something that happens to somebody else. That happened to me. Are you kidding me? They die. I'm not going to die. So we wish we had one more day, don't we? I think that's numbering your days. We look at our lives and say, boy, I want to take this day. I want to attack the day. My, my, my Georgia Bulldog, that's their slogan. That's a good slogan for the Christian life. We, by God's grace, we attack the day for his glory, right? Every day. We don't waste time. We don't waste our lives. By the way, John Piper put a very uh, book a few years ago that shaped my life, Don't Waste Your Life. So I would ask you this morning, are you wasting your life? Are you? What are you doing with your life? We'll get to that in a moment. But teach us a number of days that we might get a heart of wisdom. There are only a certain number of days. God's numbered our days. Remember, he's written in his book, every one of them, even as before any of them existed, there's just a certain number of days and you need to count the days. Not being paranoid about your death or not wondering about the whereabouts of the grim reaper or something like that. But no, numbering your days in terms of living for his glory. But we don't, we'll never learn this in our own strength. We'll never learn to make the most of our days. Because we don't believe the Bible when it says we're going to die. 70 or 80 years, I'm going to be the one exception. But you're not, and I'm not either. I'm not sure I believe that all the time. But we live as if we don't believe it, don't we? Think about the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. I won't read it, I'll just allude to it, but think about that. He said, I've got all these crops, I'm going to build bigger barns, I'm going to eat, I'm going to just, I'm going to enjoy my life. Here, here it is. Jesus said, you fool. Be drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. This very night your life is going to be required of you. And what? What's going to become of your things? What's going to become of your life? And that's the question for us that our Lord's putting to us, isn't it? It's what, what's going to become of our lives when it's over? We need to learn to number our days to get a heart of wisdom. What's wisdom? Well, wisdom is living in light of God's character, God's who God is, in light of God's truth, in light of His work, in light of His Word. It's living as if all those things, as if the Word of God is true. Believing it and living in life. That's wise living. Fearing God. The fear of the Lord, the writer of Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom. That can lead him to verse 14. He says, Satisfy us in the morning and your steadfast, uh, and your steadfast love, with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That's it. Are you numbering your days? Are you praying for and seeking a heart of wisdom? Are you seeking your wisdom in something else in this world? Or maybe a friend who seems wise in a worldly way, but they don't. This is not where they get their wisdom. They're just kind of, they have a lot of pithy aphorisms that seem to be a good way to live, but it's not biblical. That may be all well and good, but the, the Bible says, no, this is wisdom. This is why we need the Word of God. I'm not, you know, we, I say this to you all the time. I'm not trying to get you to just check a box. Be proud of yourself for having done so, but no, we need God's wisdom. Secondly, he he, he says, he prays for an end of his suffering. Verse 13, how long, he says. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Have pity in the midst of suffering. He's calling on God to have pity on him, <clears throat> to rescue him from suffering, perhaps even for the return of the Lord. I don't think we pray that God will come back. Maranatha, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. I don't think we pray that enough. We should pray that. Uh, the older I get, the more I pray that. The worse the world gets, the more it seems to get, the more I pray that. But you say, should we ask God? And he says, God ordains our suffering. Should we ask, <clears throat> is it all right to ask that he rescue us from it? Well, Paul seemed to think it was okay. He said, he asked three times to remove the thorn from his flesh, right? Yeah, I think it's fine. And even in asking, we know that there's a, only a, there's a shelf life to our suffering. 
and our affliction, our adversity that's going to come to an end, even if it's 70 or 80 years, there's an end to it. Pray for an end to our suffering. He prays for that God will satisfy him with his unfailing love. So we should pray that God will satisfy us with his unfailing love. Verse 14. In the morning. In the morning. What does he mean by that? I think it means daily. Every day, every morning, pray that God will make us happy amid our suffering. Make us happy in Him. That we will lay up our treasure in heaven. I mean, Moses wants the Lord to be his treasure because it's only the treasure in heaven that will outlast this brief life. God's love for us is unfailing. He loved you enough to send his son to die in your place. That is a love that we cannot fathom if we were to think about it for 10,000 lifetimes. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves hardened rebels like us. And so we should pray to be satisfied in his love that no matter what this life brings or what this, our lot is in this life, that we're satisfied in Christ. These are treasure, our portion forever, our pearl of great price, our treasure in the field. Fourthly, pray the Lord, the Lord will make us joyful amid affliction because affliction comes from God. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many days as we have seen evil. Pray us, make us glad, make us happy that the affliction has come into our lives, God, at your hand. You've allowed this or you've brought this into our lives. God's decretive will, God's permissive will, doesn't matter. It's coming into our lives at the hand of God, right? Make us joyful. Make us joyful because, verse 14 is true, you're our treasure, you're our portion. Your love is enough for us. Is God enough for you? Is Christ enough for you? We must always be asking ourselves almost daily that question, is Christ enough for me? Fifthly, pray the Lord's work will be seen and His glorious power will be seen by our children. Verse 16, he's praying, of course, that His generation of the Israelites will not enter into the kingdom or into the promised land, but the generation to come, and He wants them to see God work in their lives and them to see God's power as they've seen it. And I want my children, I want my children who are sitting right here this morning, and your children, I want them to see God's power at work in their lives and in, in the church. That. Almost more than anything, anything, I pray for that every single day. And if you have godly parents, they're praying that for you or pray that for you. Make us joyful in affliction. Pray that God's work would be seen. And we want our children to see God's power. And finally, verse 16, or 17, right, sorry. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands I'm going to tell you what I've told my own children probably 500 times. So they're going to hear it 501. And it may sound like a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And I think that it's a good summary of what we've been reading here and considering this morning. God's giving you one life. One. On this earth. What are you going to do with it? The old song I quoted, the rock and roll song from a couple weeks ago, Yes, there are two paths you can go by. Which is it going to be? Are you going to live in a small little claustrophobic kingdom of one, yourself, or in your own glory? Or are you going to live all out for his glory? That's it. Are you going to pray that God will give you favor and establish the work of your hands? This isn't a prosperity gospel kind of prayer, is it? It's the true prosperity gospel. You're going to work for him, and I don't mean by vocational ministry necessarily, but work for him wherever you are, because not one square inch of all creation belongs to someone other than God, right? You're going to pray that he will establish the work of your hands. One of my old mentors put it, right now counts forever. Right now, today, today counts forever. Today, young person you do today, it's going to count. You know, it's going to take a day off from God and take a day off from living to God's glory or my glory. It's one or the other. Don't you want your works on earth to outlive you in the years ahead? What are you living for? If life is short, 
if eternity is forever, if God is forever, are you living as if this is all there is? Because the writer of Hebrews says this, it is appointed a man once to die. After this, the judgment. Always say at funerals, two things you're going to cheat. You may cheat on your taxes. You know, death and taxes, people say you won't cheat those. Not true. People cheat on their taxes, but you won't cheat death and you won't cheat eternity. And it's appointed to man, to you, once to die. The date of your death, it's written in God's book. And after that comes the judgment, and it's too late. What are you going to do with your life? After that, the judgment. Will you ask God to remember your days? That you might get a heart of wisdom. Will you seek refuge from God's wrath in the only place it can be found? On the rugged cross. Because a hundred years goes faster than you think it can. Father, I acknowledge that this is heavy. Moses' prayer here is heavy. God, I think we need some, we could use some heaviness. We live in a world that loves levity. And Father, we certainly do love laughter here at Christ Fellowship. But the eternality of God and the frailty of humanity and the brevity of life, no laughing matter. God, I pray this morning that every person here young and not so young would feel the weight of the brevity of life pressing in on them. But God, whether we are seven or seventy, that you would teach us to number our days and that you would grant us a heart of wisdom through your word. Oh God, do it. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. I pray you do it. Because you are our hope, our only hope. Give us grace to live every day as if it's our last for your glory. In Jesus' name.